So one thing I remember from childhood, and that you probably do too, from your, not from mine, uh, is the day before we expected visitors, important visitors to arrive. That was the day for the big cleaning project. Maybe, maybe the family members from far away or somebody important from your parents' work or something like that. And the day before they come, everything has to be made spotless. It's the time for working hard to prepare for their arrival. And there, there weren't there just always those things that got in the way and prevented everything from actually being perfect. Maybe like the, the cat made a mess or something, or maybe things were just messier than we actually thought at first. But either way, when the guests were expected, the, the cleaning endeavor had to continue. And, and I imagine that you all sort of sympathize with that anecdote. But we might have to use our imagination a bit if we start to extend this and think about what city officials feel like when they expect a visit from the royals. And, and I mean, certainly to a much higher degree, like local families hope to present their homes to visitors in decent order, town officials long to present the region they supervise in pristine condition when the king or or queen arrives and it's of course in their shining moment to be able to present the monarch with the well-ordered province and now to connect that to our passage the idea of royal visitation plays a major role. It is shot through 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 to 20. An emperor's royal visitation was ingrained in the broader cultural awareness as one of the highest political moments in the first century. The, the emperor comes to inspect, and it's good news for loyal citizens. And the, this idea of royal visitation, it hangs right on the front edges of our text. The, the moment of Christ Jesus' return, His coming, is bound up into the notion, the Old Testament notion of the day of the Lord, when, when God Himself comes to judge the nations. But it's also tied well into the idea that the king expects his people to be well presented to him on upon his arrival. And so one author has then said that this passage is filled with royal theology of the Messiah. Psalm 2 comes to life here as the king comes back to receive the world for his inheritance. And so... Where, where are, what are we doing? This is a, a series on first and second Thessalonians and Paul wrote this letter as a way to encourage Christians in Thessalonica during a time of oppression. And in chapter one, he told them that he had confidence that they belonged to God's chosen. And then earlier in, in chapter two, before the verses we focus on tonight, he exhorted them 
to pursue diligently after imitating the godly examples. And throughout this letter, Paul weaves together the themes, the recurring themes of imitating godliness, the doctrine of election, and the return of Christ to craft words of hope for these people under trial. And so the main point here from these verses is that mature Christians are the last day trophy for gospel ministers. Mature Christians are the last day trophy for gospel ministers. We'll see that in three points. The desire to come, the difficulty of the devil, and the day of the Lord. And so first, the desire to come. In in these verses, Paul primarily emphasized his desire to his want and longing to visit the Thessalonian Christians. And so during his ministry in Thessalonica, unbelieving opponents dragged members of the church before the authorities. And Paul was abruptly forced to leave for Berea. And in this point, what we're going to think about is specifically the reason that Paul desired to come back and visit the Thessalonians. So so to give you a bit of an outline, not that it's a long passage, but but still to outline it for you, we see in verses 17 and 18, Paul states his desire to visit the Thessalonians. And in 19 and 20, he gives the reason he wanted to visit. So basic outline there for you. And as we read previously in Acts 17... The Jews in Thessalonica became jealous over Paul and Silas's ministry success. And so they pulled Jason and some other Christians before the city officials, charging them with sedition. And because of this hostile reaction to new Christianity, we read as well in Acts 17.10 that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And so the Thessalonians abruptly sent... So notice... Because one of the things going on here is people ask, did Paul abandon these people? And so notice, no, they sent their founding pastor away, which led Paul to write in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So, I mean, is it, is it not striking to you how intense Paul's language is about this separation? They were torn away, torn away from the church. And clearly it left Paul feeling distraught over this quick departure. He he longed just to see the young Christians in Thessalonica and had even attempted to return already. But Satan got in the way. So then, in verse 19 and 20, we find out why 
he has been so eager to see them in person. And, th- and th- this is the really important bit. So, so sort of tune in here. Do you see that little word for at the beginning of verse 19? In, in most situations when for opens a sentence in, in New Testament scripture, really it means because. I mean, that's the sense of it. And like here. And so we see that Paul longs to see them face to face because these people, the, no, these people are actually his hope and joy and crown of boasting when Jesus Christ returns. These converts are a source for Paul to rejoice about what will happen at Christ's return. Now, here's the thing. I know, I know some of you who are really paying attention are saying something like, I thought, I thought Jesus himself was Paul's hope at the last day. How, how can these Thessalonians, these people, be his hope and joy? And that is an excellent question, and we will come to it in point three. So, wait. The point here, though, to remember and to note is how much Paul clearly, I mean, just how much he loved the people of this church. Is that not obvious in this? He looked forward to the return of Christ. I mean, we, we do know the world ends when Jesus comes back, right? And Paul looked forward to the return of Christ that would end the world in part because it was a day when he would present his spiritual children to the Son in glory. And so, so the ambassador would present his careful work at that royal visitation. The moment when the king arrives. And then in the, so that's the sort of theoretical thing, if we could say it that way. But practically, the, the thing that we should take away here from this ongoing investment of Paul in people to whom he's ministered, practically, God's goodness to us in salvation does not stop at the moment of our conversion. Conversion is step one. It's not the end of things. Although God's saving act towards us is decisive and final in our justification, meaning certainly once and for all, irreversibly delivered from the penalty of our sins and utterly guaranteed right as citizenship or as citizens in the kingdom of God. God continues His saving work in us in sanctification, delivering us from the power of sin so that we might more and more die unto sin and live under righteousness. So one of... One of the main ways, to hash this out a bit further, one of the main ways God does His ongoing work in us is through the communion of saints, through His church. And and in the church, we are put in fellowship to bear one another's burdens. And then as more are clearly outlined in this passage, or relevant from this passage, we participate in church discipline and are put under the shepherding supervision of our elders. And that supervision that we see at work in this passage, Paul wasn't content 
that there was just evidence of conversion in the Thessalonians. He wanted to know. He, he wanted to check that they were still pursuing Christ in deeper holiness. The desire to come was Paul's concern to make sure that their faith was growing, thriving, and blossoming into greater fruits of righteousness. And that brings us to our second point, the difficulty of the devil. So, I'm guessing that there is one phrase in this text that has leapt out at everybody, but Satan hindered us. And it's time to address that. Because, okay, so, let's just get everything on the table. We have to, we have to reckon with two dangers, don't we? One of overplaying Satan's role and that of underplaying Satan's role. On the one hand, people say something like, the devil made me do it. And the scripture, however, will not let us pawn our responsibility for sin off onto the devil. James 1. 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So clearly, your own desires lead you to sin. Yet, okay, so perhaps especially in the West... We likely scoff too easily at the notion of the devil at work among us. We, and we don't live in a place where we are surrounded by demon possession and the like. And we are far more likely to blame our struggle and failure on natural reasons than on the devil. Not to say that we need to get fanciful and blame the devil for everything. But we do have to reckon with what the Bible says. I mean, we read in Job some pretty horrific things and how God permitted Satan to afflict Job with calamity. And we have to take seriously that Satan had a very real part in that. I mean, and let's not be naive. Okay, Satan hasn't changed his position over the millennia he still hates the people of god he still hates you first peter 5 8 reminds us be sober minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour he is eager to destroy you And so we can't neglect the fact that He is there and that He can at times hinder the people of God. Satan longs to make a mess of the church as we prepare ourselves for the royal visit. He, He wants to tarnish the trophies of gospel ministers that they can present at the last day. He is not an innocent enemy, or one that we should neglect. And so we have to deal responsibly with this phrase that Satan hindered Paul from visiting the Thessalonians. I mean, we do know, I mean, Paul at some times recognized that God prevented his traveling plans because he had other intentions for Paul's ministry, as we could read in 
Acts 16, that the Holy Spirit rerouted Paul from his intended destination. So that happens sometimes, that God redirects us. In our text, though, the hindering of the work, not the redirecting, but the hindering of the work of God, Paul called this Satan's work. And so so we have to learn to balance our assessment of, of issues between giving Satan too much and too little credit. So foremost, I, I think, I mean, here, here's sort of to bring it around to, to real world thought about this. We have to learn to look for Satan in his deceit rather than in something that is showy and explicit. I mean, sort of like that uh, on cleaning day before the visitors, we never see the cat make the mess. But when we see the mess, obviously it was the cat. If, I mean, I'm picking on cats, but it's because I don't like them. Um, here, I want to illustrate this. So some historians had a discussion one time about the Salem witch trials. So so these were an, a series of events that took place in Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1600s. And there was, there was this pandemic of accusations of witchcraft and almost everyone accused ended up dying. And so, of course, the whole town was afraid. So in this discussion, these historians were talking about the devil's actual role in Salem. And so, so one historian said, clearly these people were paranoid and, and odds of that many people practicing witchcraft just are unlikely. And there's no real evidence that we have of demon possessions. And so he asserted that the devil had no real role in Salem and that it was just people's primitive religious zeal. Now, the other historian, which I I don't know if he was a a Christian, you know, per se, but the other historian responded that Salem experienced a, a period where everyone was afraid of each other. Massive amounts of people were killed and they were, people in this town were quick, lightning fast to accuse one another Mainly because they were afraid of that other person accusing them first. And so there were excessive deaths and a paralysis of dread that gripped the whole town. And you know what? It sounds sort of like the devil was at work in Salem. Does that make sense? I mean, that it, right. Is it not Satan's brilliant deceit to convince townspeople then that he was at work in a way that would deceive later generations into thinking he wasn't? And we should expect the same deviousness today. The devil will seek to destroy you. He's not a comic strip villain. This is a bad guy who wants to devour you, not by announcing himself, He doesn't come in a black hat. And he doesn't show himself as your enemy. And so is this not the cause? Is this not serious cause to keep real watch on our own lives, Christians? To guard ourselves? Will Satan not seek 
to lure you into sin in ways that make sin seem so totally reasonable. This is a great idea. And then our lives are a wreck. So we have to guard our hearts and be accountable. And this isn't invasive to be accountable to other Christians. It's because the devil has asked to sift some of you. Christ has prayed for his elect. Satan caused a difficulty for Paul in preventing his return to Thessalonica, but today's difficulty of the devil is balancing fanciful stories against total skepticism. It brings us to our last point. The day of Christ. So, the first point, we saw how Paul desired to see the Thessalonians because he was their pastor and longed to make sure that they were pursuing Christ. And, and then we saw our need to think responsibly about Satan, not being overly imaginative, but also not underestimating how much he hates believers and works against us in deceitful ways. At this point, we return to that question of how can Paul say that the Thessalonians are his hope, joy, and crown of boasting for the day of Christ's return? And so here we get to dive into the weeds of some really cool material that helps us understand the whole of the New Testament. And so what, what we're about to see is how Paul thinks the return of Christ will be a great day for Christians. But also, so first premise, he thinks it'll be a great day for Christians, but also that the countdown to the glorious appearing has begun, which should excite us. I mean, really. We, I mean, we get ramped up when the, when the countdown starts, even if it's for something stupid. But the clock is ticking down for the return of our Savior. And so this should be good news. And so, does anyone remember how last time we were in 1 Thessalonians, we looked at chapter 2, verse 13 to 16? And before that, for our first reading, uh, we read Daniel 8, and and then I didn't say anything about it. Well, now I'm going to take that back up. So... Quickly, if you'll look at verse 16 in chapter 2, Paul said the Jews' hostile acts against Christians fill up, quote, fill up the measure of their sins. And so that phrase, to fill up the measure of their sins, refers to to Daniel 8, 23 to 24, which says, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit... A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. So to to highlight the important bit, well, it's all important, but the relevant bit for what we're talking about. Daniel said when transgressors reach their limit, so fill up their sin. It is the last days. And so, so Paul applies this phrase about the end of days, the signal that the end of time is, is impending, 
he applies that phrase to what the Jews were doing when they refused to believe that God had sent the Messiah. And then, then in light of that, as if that's not big enough, Paul drops this whole section about the return of Christ, depicting it as a royal visitation. And that royal visitation is linked to Paul's joy because he has been working towards it since he's been called to ministry. So in terms of our original metaphor about expecting important company, Paul's been hurriedly working to get the house in order before the guests arrive, before the king comes to see his people. He worked ceaselessly to prepare Christ's people for their king's appearing. And then again, okay, so next thing. Do you remember chapter 2, verse 12? We camped on that a few weeks ago. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, note, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And so the royal calling into the kingdom set the stage for this discussion of the royal visitation. We have this direct connection between the calling and the royal theology here. The Thessalonians were called into the kingdom and now they await the return of the king. Now Paul often refers to hope as the future for fulfillment of all our salvation. And so one, just to show you one really explicit example, Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, clearly, I mean, that clearly designates our hope as the eternal rest in the kingdom of God. And so Paul can refer here, so I'm going to draw it together, you've still been waiting for the answer, here it is. Paul can refer to the Thessalonians as his hope and his joy because they, they are so bound into that eternal kingdom. In other words, the only reason anyone can believe in Christ is if there is that effectual calling into the kingdom that works faith in us. And we saw that a few weeks ago. No one can believe without that effectual call. But if people... Now, here we go. If people do have faith in Christ, it means Christ is coming back. It guarantees it. Christ will come back to install His kingdom in full if He has brought people to His kingdom in spirit. Christ returned for you. Now, I mean, here, this is what should excite you and fill you with hope for the week. Christ's return for you, for you, is guaranteed because there are believers all over this world. It's proof. So the Thessalonians are Paul's hope and joy and reason to boast because they are proof that the countdown to Christ's return is going. They are evidence that the clock is ticking for the return of the King. The day of the Lord is when Christ will return and for believers, faith will give way to sight. Paul and all ministers will present those trusted to their care to Christ as trophies, evidence of our usefulness, 
which is in some ways terrifying. But by God's grace, we will all appear in mature holiness. So as we close, I want to ask you, I mean, I sort of want to probe at this a little bit. Have you ever thought of faith quite like this? Have you ever considered your faith not simply, I mean, I know so many of you have thought about your faith as a gift from God, and that is absolutely true. That That's step one of what I'm saying here. But in addition to this, as a, it's a gift from God that guarantees Christ's return for you. If you believe, that's evidence of Christ's return. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee, or better, the down payment of our inheritance. The Spirit's presence in you by faith means because your spirit has been resurrected, your soul has been resurrected, it guarantees you'll receive the resurrection body. If Christ indwells you now by His Spirit through faith, then He's promised to come back for you. He has left, so ascended now, only to prepare a place for us, a kingdom that we will receive when He returns. And I have to take a moment and just ask, point out, if you're not in Christ, His appearing for you will not be glorious. Unbelievers do not await the King with hope. When Christ returns, it will also be to purge the earth of traitors and rebels who have broken His law and opposed His people. And the return of Christ will mean judgment and hell. That is not, it is not how it has to be. Christ calls even now, even now, through the preaching of His Scripture, that you, if you don't believe, would come to faith. Don't resist. If you feel this prodding in your heart, don't delay to believe in Jesus, because there may not be another day to tarry. If you would trust in Christ now, He would wash you of your sins. He would justify you. Declare you righteous. And make you citizens of His kingdom. You would join the company of this church as one who waits in anticipation for the return of the King. Let's pray.